Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he had said, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and in those days told no one of the things they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Just then a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. Suddenly a spirit seizes him, and all at once he shrieks. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him and will scarcely leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astounded at the greatness of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Lindsay. You may be seated. Grace and peace to you all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Someone once told me that across all of the world's religions, the most commonly used symbol is the mountain of God. You can see why, right? Mountains, they're strong and powerful. They are bigger and older than us. And when you're up on a mountain, the scope of your vision widens. So it is not surprising that the setting for this revelation of Jesus' glory is a mountain. A mountain stands for God. Except for when it doesn't. In our confirmation class this year, I often draw on the whiteboard a crude rendition of a mountain for our ninth graders. Two lines making the slopes and some snow at the top. In the concrete thinking that marks their developmental stage, they refer to it as the capital A with the squiggly line. And they always roll their eyes when I draw it because they know we're about to talk about human greed and power plays. 
That's what the mountain represents in our confirmation class. It represents the way we turn against each other, elbow each other out of the way as we race toward the top. See, there's not enough room for everyone up there. You've got to leave some people behind if you want to make it. Being kind, that's a liability. Empathy is weakness. If you want that glorious seat at the top, you've got to be cunning and shrewd because there's just not enough mountain to go around. That's a refrain we hear often, usually said with an air of resignation. There's just not enough to go around. I know you came to church to hear me preach today, but I want to hear from you right now, so be brave. What do you hear this about? Where in your life or in our world do people say there's just not enough to go around? What isn't there enough to go around of? Food right? We hear about hungry folks in our community, and yet we know the earth produces enough food to feed everyone. We've got a distribution problem, and we have a waste problem. What else? Clean water. Clean water. Yeah, that one actually is scary, isn't it? How, <laughs> people are now predicting there might be wars in the future over a water scarcity and we need to figure out how to learn, learn to live wisely in a rapidly changing climate. Housing. Housing. Yeah. And yet, you know what's interesting is that even though there's so many homeless people, why is it dead on arrival to make a proposal like no one gets a second house until everyone gets a first? Somehow we've convinced ourselves that that's not a tenable solution. Space within the country. We fear when people seek out America. We get really, really upset sometimes. Is there going to be space for us all? We th convince ourselves that there's not enough. So we've all been on this kind of mountain. You know what it feels like. We know what it's like to try to work ourselves up those slopes convincing ourselves that where we are and who we are, that that's not good enough and that we need the glory that's waiting for us at the peak in order to feel okay about ourselves. We also know what it's like to be betrayed on the mountainside, to be left behind by someone who chooses ambition instead of relationship because they believe that there's not enough to go around. There's not enough to go around. It's a seductive idea. It sneaks into our minds, and soon it becomes the lens through which we view the whole world. Sometimes it even governs the way we approach God. This text is a prime example. It is about God's glory, and yes, God is glorious, but God's glory is a tricky concept. The way we use glory in our world, it makes it seem like it's something that's only found at the top of the mountain, something that there's not enough of for everyone. 
And so no one automatically gets glory in our world. You only get glory after you do something. You got to climb the mountain. Glory is the applause, the spotlight, the trophy. Glory is for Super Bowl champions and Oscar winners and pastors who put their own names on their ministries. Glory, at least the way we use it, is synonymous with fame. Not everyone can be famous. There's simply not enough fame and glory to go around. That's how the world understands glory. And so when we see a text today where glory is found at the top of a mountain, I get a little worried as a pastor. I get worried that we will go away thinking about Jesus as nothing more than a divine Super Bowl champion that will just take the idea of what glory looks like in the world and apply it to Jesus. That's what the disciples do today. Three disciples, they bear witness to one of the most astounding meetings in religious history. There they are on the mountain with Jesus, and suddenly Moses and Elijah appear, and they are all talking together. These are seminal figures in the Bible, people these disciples had been hearing about since they were kids. And they're all glowing in the light of God's glory. And what do the disciples do? They want to keep that glory for themselves. They want to stash it away like buried treasure. Let's build booths. We don't have to leave this mountain. Other people can stay at the bottom. We're good here. And even when they do leave, they tell no one. As though letting others in on this experience is going to lessen it. They want to hang on to the exclusivity of their experience, keep it to themselves so they feel special because they are afraid that there's not enough of God's glory to go around. We too can hang on tightly to the glory we see and the blessings we receive afraid that they will no longer be as glorious or that they'll cease to bless us if we let them loose. Be brave here again. What do you want to build a booth around? What glory do you hang on to for yourself? This one's a little harder, so I'll go first. (laughs) One thing I've noticed about myself is that I hang on to this need I have to be right. And if I am right, that's where I want to be. I don't want to mess with the other stuff. If I'm in an argument with someone, mm mm-mm. Keep me in the, the, my bubble of righteousness, right? I I don't need to, to do the work of reconciliation. What about you? What do you cling to? Control. Control. Huge. And we get some of it, right? We can make decisions in our life, but sometimes, oh boy, there it goes. And who are we when that happens? Are we still ourselves? Pride? Yeah. We attach 
an idea of who we are to what we do and what we accomplish, it's not who we are. It's what we do. <laughs> and yet we conflate the two, and that, that uh, creates some big problems when we stop achieving or when we lose control. Yes, we, we just want to be good. It's, it's an earnest desire, isn't it? It's not bad to want to be good, but if we put too many eggs in that basket, it leads us away from experiencing God's grace to us and knowing ourselves as someone who is already loved by God. It's easy to think that, the, that God's glory works like the world's glory. And so it's understandable that we pounce on glory when it comes, that we want to keep it to ourselves and hoard it. But Luke's gospel gives an important detail in this story that isn't included when the transfiguration appears in the gospels of Matthew and Mark, and it makes us see God's glory differently. Luke tells us that when Jesus is in conversation with Moses and Elijah, they are talking about his departure. I learned this week from Caroline Lewis, the preaching professor at Luther Seminary, that the Greek word for departure is exodus. Exodus! That's the movement from slavery to freedom. That's what God's glory is all about. It's not about drawing our admiration and applause toward God. It's the opposite. It's freedom that flows from God to this whole world in Jesus Christ. Freedom. That is what's, what God's glory is. St. Irenaeus, an early church father, has a beautiful way of putting this. The glory of God, he said, is a human being fully alive. God's glory is the exodus from whatever holds us back from being free and fully alive. God's glory, it looks like Moses and the enslaved Hebrew people throwing off their shackles and marching through the sea because they realize that they can't be fully alive in a system that denies their worth. God's glory looks like Elijah befriending a widow and her son who have been left to die in a drought and finding that they're sustained not just by the food God provides them, but by recognizing each other's dignity. God's glory looks like Jesus in the second half of this reading. Jesus shows as much of God's glory when he heals this boy to make him fully alive and at home in his body as Jesus does when he's standing on the mountain with a shining face. God's glory looks like the exodus of Jesus' death and resurrection, where on the cross Jesus shows that there's always more than enough to go around of God's forgiveness, and whose empty tomb breaks the grip the fear of death holds over each one of us, so that we can be fully alive in him we have another glorious exodus this morning. At 9 a.m., we welcomed Amelia and Sienna, and now we'll welcome Warren and Caroline into God's family 
through holy baptism. In these waters, God promises to deliver us from the bondage of trying to prove ourselves and trying to convince ourselves that we're enough and trying to be anyone other than who we are. There's an exodus from that in these waters into the glorious freedom of simply being and being fully alive. And I want to know one last question. Where are you seeing this kind of glory in your lives or the world? Where are you witnessing people making that exodus from slavery into the freedom of being fully alive? That's really sad. You guys are going to have to look harder. Let me share what 9 a.m. said, okay? One person said, I see people fully alive at the YMCA. He was thinking about how people with disabilities can work out there. He was thinking about how young people and old people can work out there and how they celebrate each other in community as they all make the journey into health. Another person said, in my children, they said, we learn something from watching our children and the way that they engage the world and explore it. And still another said, this church and the ways that people find the connections to their own calling in the world and the people that will help them figure that out. Look for it in your lives this week. So the most beautiful part about God's glory is how it spreads. There's always more than enough of God's glory to go around so it doesn't stay confined. It runs over. Freedom breeds freedom. And as each one of us begins to live fully alive, we unconsciously give permission for others to do the same. Ten days after the 2015 massacre at the AME Church in Charleston, an African-American artist named Bree Newsom donned a helmet and scaled the flagpole outside the South Carolina State House where the Confederate flag still hung. She recited a psalm as she removed it and another one as she was arrested. When they asked her why she did it, do you know what she said? She said, I did it because I am free. And what better reason to risk your own freedom than to fight for the freedom of others? That's what God's glory looks like. Not racing up the mountain to get there first so we can hoard it all to ourselves. No. Getting caught up in the river of freedom that flows from the mountain of God and through this font and into your lives and into our world until all are free and all are fully alive. Amen.